Hi, and welcome to the Southern Connecticut Church of Christ podcast. We've provided a collection of sermons, our midweek lessons, music, and many more tools to help you grow in your walk with God. We are living in an unprecedented and challenging time, but we invite you to listen in and be encouraged as we fight through this together. Be sure to subscribe and feel free to share this podcast with your friends and loved ones. Thanks for listening. The, the racial and cultural challenge and division is just one aspect that we'll face in the church. There are There is gender, there is age, there's a lot of different, you know, there's sexuality, there's a lot of different divisions we could talk about. But I think if we use the principles that we learn and and use race and culture as a um, as a model, as a paradigm, we can use some of those same principles in these other areas of potential division. In the same way within that, and in this workshop here, this session, I'm going to focus a little more on uh, the history of the black and white. Not because that's the only two groups in our group. We have, we have you know, uh, Asian, Latino, we have a lot of different groups. But I do think the black and white thing is, is obviously the big, biggest topic of conversation, the most historic in some ways in our country. And uh, if we can figure that one out, then we start to have the biblical principles to apply to any of the other ones. So we're going to use this as a case study and not as a, so if you're sitting there and you're like, I'm not white or black, uh, it's stuff that you don't matter or that, you know, this is the only two groups in the church. This is a case study so that we can, because we don't have time to include the history and background of every single uh, group, unless we want to have like a 16 week class on this or something, we just wouldn't be able to do that. Uh, at the beginning here, I want to just reorient us on God's vision of his people is at a very costly price. He purchased people from every tribe, every language, every people group, and every nation. This is what God wants as his family. But we take those areas of that God wants to bring together, and we turn them into different areas of conflict and separation and divide and you know all of these things and it comes down to this god is a god that loves diversity he's created a massive amount of diversity in his creation but we have a tendency as humans to take those differences and turn them into divisions rather than seeing the beauty of the differences, we turn them into divisions. And it's human nature. It's a form of tribalism. We group up. We find people who have characteristics like ours, and then we become us, and they, you become them. And it, it's wherever you go in the world. When we are in the United States, we tend to do workshops that are uh, race and culture. When we're in Africa, we call it tribalism and culture, and it's the same workshop, but it's a, it's a different manifestation of it. But God has made us with differences, and I think it's really important to um, recognize those, identify those. 
um, and to celebrate them, that this is what God's doing, that God is bringing together this diversity, showing his wisdom to the world. That, that's where sometimes we tend to have this idea like, well, I don't, I don't see color. I don't see race. I'm colorblind. That actually works against what God wants to do. God wants to show off to the world, look, the world can't bring the racial groups together, the people groups together. I separated in the Babel because of division, and I'm the one who promised Abraham in the very next chapter that I would bring them back together. And so just like we say at a wedding, what God has brought together, let no man break apart, the opposite's true too. What God broke apart, no human will be able to put back together. So try as humans might for the last couple thousand years, we can't bring the people groups together for very long. Only God can do that. And he wants us to see the differences and celebrate them. And if you've ever been tempted to say, you know, I don't see color, I'm colorblind. Let me just put that in context. Uh, uh, as I look at the screen, I see a, I see a big guy. Uh, Jeff looks like a big guy. Um, sipping on his drink there. All right, Jeff's a big guy. Imagine if you walk up to a guy like that and you go, you know what, by the way, I'm gender blind. I don't see gender. I mean, it's gender. You're genderless to me. I don't, I don't see you as a man. You're no different than a woman to me. You're the same uh, man, woman. It's all the same. Like, even as I'm sitting there, I bet Jeff's a little uncomfortable with that. He's like, uh, yeah, no, nah, man. I, like, chill, bro. I'm, I'm a man. Because God made Jeff man. God made Nori a woman. That's part of our identity. That's who we are. And so that there's a beauty in that. So when we say, I don't see color, then, well, you're saying you don't see me. You don't see some of the identity that God gave me. And I know what people mean when they say it, but it doesn't communicate that. It actually works against what God did. I see color. And I'm glad. I want all the colors. I want all the shades in God's kingdom, because that's what God wants to do. Now, in this session, I want to do something called a, a little bit of a sankofa. Uh, that word comes from the Akan language in Ghana, and it means to go back and to get. A sankofa, is, it's pictured by a bird retrieving a seed from its back, and it's a journey to looking backwards to understand where you are so that you can move forward correctly in the future. So if we're going to look forward, where does the church need to go and how do we need to navigate the waters of, of society that we find ourselves in? We have to understand a little bit of where we've been. And this is really important because I think um, some of the history, the way it's taught in our country is woefully inadequate. I say that as a former history teacher. Um, I think we are often unaware of the experiences and histories of each other's groups. And sometimes in the church, and that leaves us at a disadvantage because we don't really understand the world in which we're living. God created and separated people into different people groups. That doesn't mean we have to be divided. Because we've then taken different groups, and rather than working together in this great harmony of diversity, we've turned them into racial and ethnic divisions. Now, the Bible has always said that God created all the nations from one man. There's one race, the human race, says the Bible. Well, there you go. End of story, right? We don't need to talk about it anymore. There's one race, the human race. 
I don't want to hear any more about it. Well, that's about as effective as saying a husband and wife don't need to talk about their issues because they became one flesh when they got married. There's still a lot of work to do to make that a reality, right? But the Bible has always said that there's one race, the human race. Humanity keeps coming up with different ideas. Oh, no, no, no. There's different levels of human beings. And it's based on this. It's based on that. We'll look at a few in just a minute. Um, the theory of evolution came along and said, you know what? People evolved separately. And so there's, there's fixed biological categories. And uh, we came up with this concept of race. Scientists now go, oops, sorry, funny thing. It turns out the concept of race is actually not a biological fixed category. It actually doesn't exist, scientifically speaking. We kind of made it up. And that people in the in different racial groups can have more in common DNA than people in the same racial group. That skin color is not the only determining factor. So there is no such thing as race. In fact, your skin color is simply determined by the amount of melanin protein that you have in your skin. If you have a lot of melanin, you have darker brown skin. There's actually only one human skin color. It's brown. We have different shades of that. So if you have more melanin, you have a darker brown shade of skin. And if you're melanin deficient, like myself, then you have a lighter uh, shade of brown. But is it as simple as saying, okay, the Bible says there's no such thing as race. There's just the human race. Therefore, we don't need to talk about it. Well, here's the thing. If I'm driving down the road one night and I see a deer and I swerve to miss the deer and it takes me off the road and I drive down the shoulder and I go through a fence and I break the fence and I wrap my car around a tree. And then I get out and I realize there was no deer there. I just thought it was there, but I was seeing things. Well, there was no deer, but the damage done from thinking there was a deer to the fence in my car and the tree is still real. So while there maybe is no scientific category of race, we have made it so in our culture, in our society. And the damage done from that unbiblical idea is real. Going into this session, let me be very clear. There is no one group of people that is any more guilty of sin than another. He who is without sin cast the first stone. This is not intended to demonize one group or make anyone feel bad. These things shift, these things change. All human beings are guilty of sin. The perceptions of skin color and status change over time. And groups have, you know, committed sins against each other. But we're looking right now at the recent past of how we got where we are. Uh, kind of one of those funny illustrations that show you how things have changed is we'll read the Bible and it talks about Moses marrying a Cushite woman, who's a, a black African woman. And his sister Miriam gets upset about it. And we assume, well, she's upset because maybe, you know, Moses married a black woman or something. But what we don't realize is that at that time in the world, the Hebrews were the ones coming out of slavery. The Cushites were the noble warriors. They were thought of highly. So if anything of that nature is going on, Miriam is probably thinking, who do you think you are marrying one of those Cushites? You think you're big time now because you get you're marrying a Cushite woman? Um, it's a totally shifted concept. 
So these things change over time as we construct socially these ideas. Um, just a quick historical snapshot. Around the fourth century, you have Aristotle arguing a climate theory of human superiority. And he says that people in very hot and very cold climates are inferior human beings and that those in moderate climates, like say, just for example, Greece, where Aristotle lived, that's where he says superior human beings are found is in moderate climates. And so different ideas then develop of human superiority versus inferiority. Not just I like my group better or we're different, an actual, there's a characteristic that makes us superior. Uh, in the world at that time, slavery is a commonality and all groups experience slavery. Anybody could find themselves enslaved. If you had an economic disaster, if you lost a war, if you, you know, any number of things, could you could find yourself as a slave. Uh, but as, and I'm, I mean, I'm giving such a thumbnail sketch of history here, but as the new world is uh, encountered, uh, we won't call it discovered, as the new world is encountered by Europe, um, they, uh, this idea that slavery is okay and normal is still accepted in the world. And so now there's a demand for slavery that has never existed in the world before. And there's been, you know, uh, the Islamic uh, Arabs were running slave trade in Africa and vice versa, you know, all these things. But what happens is in the new world, over time, it becomes apparent that the most economically efficient source of slavery is Africa. That wasn't started because anybody thought of Africans as less or the dark color of skin as lesser. There was some concepts that people from very warm climates, because they tend to have less formal cultures, because you don't need to be so formal in a warm culture. You don't need to plan out as much as you do in a, in a cold culture. So it was easier to look on the warm cultures as being less developed. But it was economic greed that drove the engine. So it was sin. It was flat out sin that drove this engine of enslaving human beings. And of course, um, you know, there's there's more I could say there, but we'll, we'll, we're trying to give a sketch here. Um, but it, be, it gets to a point where you're in the new world, the indigenous people are not good for slaves because they can run away and disappear. European indentured servants, same problem. But Africans, it became really, efficient economically because they couldn't run away. And so over time, there became just this exclusivity to slaves were simply Africans. Now, as humanity, you have to justify your mistreatment of people. One of the strongest human urges is to justify our behavior, our mistreatment of others. So you come along and say, okay, they're lesser than us. That's what it is. And so the, what we would call racism, uh, but actually as prejudice and bigotry, uh, develops because of and to justify enslavement. And so you, you have to come up with a story 
to, to justify your behavior and your sin. So all throughout, this is not a skin issue. This is a sin issue. And that's why we don't have to be defensive about it if we're from one group or another. This is what happens when human beings don't follow God's plan for humanity. So the modern concept of race begins in the Middle Ages, uh, probably the first time by identifying Jewish people as a distinct race of people fixed biologically different than everyone else. But again, as, as a way to justify the slave trade in the New World, instead of Africa being this incredibly diverse land of many different tribes and nations and groups, it became easier to identify it as one place. It became Africa. And the people there, instead of being Bantu and Ibu and Zulu and all these different tribes, it became their black. And now it's it became confused with the idea of race. They're one thing. And so that the idea of being fixed and somehow different uh, continues to this day. Even down to today, I just saw a thing where something like 25% of medical students in the United States believe that black people have thicker skin than other races. Like that's simply not true. But it comes from way back in this time that there are biologically fixed differences between human groups. In 1676 in the United States, <clears throat> so this is a full hundred years before we're even formed as a country, there's a dispute between rich landowners and Bacon's Rebellion begins and his army is fueled by uh, poor people. And he has an army of black people who were enslaved and white indentured servants who up to this time saw themselves basically as this, as the same class. They didn't see, there wasn't a you're black, we're white sort of thing. It was like, hey, we're all poor. <laughs> we're all basically the same. They hung out with each other. They, they mated with each other, all sorts of things. Well, they also rebelled with each other. And this rebellion almost worked. They almost defeated the rich Virginia la uh, landholders. But they, they, the landowners hired an army and they were able to defeat them, but they got the message. If blacks and whites who are poor continue to identify with one another, we are not going to be able to maintain our power and position of wealth and status in the same way. So can you imagine a world where a small group of rich people exploit everyone else for their benefit? Um, and so this is what's happening. They create a series of laws uh, that were intended to make a distinction between white people and black people. So now suddenly people who thought they were Irish or thought they were, you know, uh, Scottish or thought they were Welsh or whatever are now told, no, 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 you're white and you have certain advantages from being white and you might be poor, but at least you're not black. And so you want to see a difference and maybe you can help us keep those black African people enslaved because if they get free, they're going to take your jobs. They're going to take what little money you have. So you want them where they're at. And these laws understand 
were built, these sinful ideas were built into the DNA of the colonies that there was a black and white and that there was advantage to being white. It was just built in. Don't feel guilty about that. Don't feel ashamed. That's just, that's sin. That's what happened. That's the reality. I don't feel guilty about that. I didn't do that. I do bear a responsibility to know about it and do what I can to make sure that the effects of this don't continue down to this day. So it was built in. This idea of race as a power category. And incidentally, we then had to figure out, well, because we're making up this category, what is white? And that went back and forth. There was actually 52 separate cases before the Supreme Court following the Civil War determining what was white, who was white. And that category has actually shifted over time. For long stretches of time in the country, if you were from uh, Greece, you were not considered white. Eastern Europeans were not always considered white. Italians were not always considered white. Uh, as it became dangerous to leave those groups out of that power category, because there's too many of them, then they were allowed the privileges of being white. There was even a long time in our country where the Irish were considered white. And let's be honest, if the Irish aren't white, then what's the point of that category? Then it just, it loses any credibility. Um, and it, it, there was actually, the, these are two of my favorite cases that came before the Civil War, uh, or after the Civil War, before the Supreme Court. Tekoa Azawa sues the United States, comes before the, the Supreme Court, and argues that Japanese people should be classified as free white people. The Supreme Court then rules that white was defined by the scientific community and you had to be considered part of the Caucasian race. You had to be able to trace your ancestors to the Caucasus Mountains. Now, this might sound weird, but again, they understood that they're not talking really about skin color here. They're talking about a power category. This is why this sort of case could even take place. The very next year, a high-caste Hindu gentleman named Bhagat Singh Thin says, good news, based on last year's definition, my ancestors come from the Caucasus Mountains, therefore, I'm white. The Supreme Court then ruled, well, okay, we also have to inject an amount of common sense, that's a quote, common sense, into this discussion of what white is. Clearly, you're not white. Go home. So they kept tweaking what it even was. But here's how powerful that concept is. When we talk, when I talk about this topic, invariably somebody will come back at the end and go, I just feel so ashamed of being white right now. That's not the intent of this talk. But the fact that you're even tempted maybe to feel that way shows you powerful of a lie that actually is because you didn't do any of the things that we're talking about. So the only reason you would feel shame, it is more of your identity than you realize. And so, I, and I'm not saying, oh, you're sinful or whatever, but I'm saying crammed into us to believe that we're different at a certain level. And, and we're simply not on these levels. 
in the Civil War, uh, about 750,000 men and women died during the Civil War, the four years of the Civil War. But I don't know if you're aware of this, more people died from disease and illness than bullets and bombs. Even though it was a war, the more dangerous threat was these little bacteria and these little viruses and things like that. And as evil as and sinful as things like enslavement of other colonialism and things like that were, the mindsets put in place to justify those behaviors have proven to be far more problematic and dangerous than those institutions ever were. This picture is taken in the 20th century in the Bronx, at the Bronx Zoo, where this young man, Adabenga, born in the Congo, was on display in the zoo with the monkeys. He was kept in the monkey cage. And this is 50 years nearly after the Civil War. Because the debate at the time was, are Black Africans more closely evolved and related to white humans or to apes? And so this was not the only incident of this. There were people, uh, there were zoos in West Africa, I'm sorry, Western Europe that kept Africans. So this concept, the, the mindsets that there's differences, there's inferiority and superiority continued um, and continue on to this day. Um, the, here's a, a opinion piece from the time that says, Adabenga is from a group that's very low on the human scale and the suggestion that Benga should be in a school instead of a cage ignores a high probability that school would be a place from which he could draw no advantage, whatever. The idea that all men are We seem to have lost Michael there for a moment. Hopefully, he'll come back on again. Yeah, I'm going to send him a text. Now, I think you should be good. Okay. Yeah. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, we got yeah. you. Okay. Yeah, gosh, I'm so sorry. I thought it was my Wi-Fi. I, I actually think my computer died on me. So I had to switch computers here. I think I've been uh, working it uh, too hard. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't know what I did. Um, and now I'm on this computer and I realize that I don't know how to, it's not giving me the option to start the slideshow on this one for some reason. So I'm going to do this and um, it's at the bottom next to no. Yeah, exactly. Oh, there we go. Okay. Um, anyways, I'll just I 
clicked on it. That didn't seem to want to do it. So, um, anyways, I'm, I'm sorry. Let me just get back to where we were. Um, at least it was a good transition period. I hadn't jumped into. I wasn't right in the middle of something. It was transitioning, right? So We're talking about the more serious threat. <laughs> yes. So where was the the church during this? Um, and from this angle in my office, you now get to see my my bust of King Tutankhamun uh, back in my office there over my shoulder. So if anybody's wondering, that's that's what that is. Um, but where was the church during this time? Well, if we go back to the fourth century, uh, we have a church leader named Augustine. He's a church leader in Northern Africa. And he says, whoever is born anywhere is a human being, however strange he may appear to our senses and bodily form or color or motion or utterance or in any factuality, let no true believer have any doubt that such an individual is descended from the one man who was first created. There's a biblical theology. He says, no matter how strange somebody might look, if they have an odd skin color or they just look strange, they still are a descendant of Adam. They are a child of God. They are equal to us. Now, what's interesting is in the fourth century here, he may very well be referring by people of strange color to those odd, very white-colored European people that were now coming into the church. Um, but he says, we're all ultimately the, the same. We have these differences, but he, this is the biblical concept. Um, then we have um, the, the curse of Ham. And if you haven't heard the curse of Ham, you need to know the, the curse of Ham. Because uh, the curse of Ham is the standard biblical theology from the Middle Ages on until it was even in uh, textbooks, theological books, into the 1970s and even 80s in some respects. I grew up going to a private Christian school in the 1970s and early 80s, and I remember being taught the curse of Ham. And the curse of Ham is the idea that when Noah, after the flood, uh, he actually, in the biblical story, curses Canaan uh, for the sin of Ham. And if you read the biblical story, what it's really related to is, uh, I think what's going on in there is there's actually a sexual sin being alluded to uh, with uh, Noah. And the fact that the Canaanites then will continue in this sexualized sin. But the, the theology came up that if you look at the descendants of Ham, they tended to go into places in Africa. And so they said, well, the descendants of Ham are, are Africans. And the curse that Noah gave was dark colored skin. That was the curse. And so people who have dark skin are cursed by Noah cursed by God to have black skin and to be enslaved, to be inferior. This was the curse of Ham and accepted throughout uh, much of, especially the European and Western American world. Cotton Mather, who's one of the most influential um, Puritan leaders uh, of his day, uh, 
Do you still are, are we there? Can you hear me? Okay, sorry. Okay, so Cotton Mather is one of the most influential religious leaders of his day. And he taught that it was pride that induced black to want their freedom because God had divined them to be of a lesser status. And so this is built into the religious mindset of much of America. Uh, Calvinists taught that Indians, East Indians, and uh, people of African descent were simply not in the elect. And so they could be treated differently uh, than other people, white people, European people, but they were not elect. Uh, here's a typical 18th century baptismal vow. Uh, which said, uh, uh, in essence, okay, you're being baptized, but it's, uh, it's only for the good of your soul. And make no mistake, you're not equal to uh, your master. You still owe them due and obedience. You're still enslaved. You're still a You're not equal. So they would baptize people and make them say the vow they understood this was only for their soul and they were not equal human beings. Uh, Louis Dabney, who's Robert Louis Dabney, one of the most influential um, theologians of the post-Civil War 19th century, says, okay, we believe in theory that God made of one blood all nations of men to dwell under the whole heavens. We know that the African has become, according to a well-known law of natural history, a different fixed species of the race separated by the white men by traits bodily, mental, and moral. And goes on to say the worst thing you could do is mix races because there's an inferior and superior. This was the mindset of much of American Christianity. Um, it's not true Christianity. It's not biblical Christianity. But it's definitely a warning that we can bring these same sins of society and these mindsets into the church with us if we are not extremely diligent and careful. Then we have good old white Jesus. Um, and I know it's easy to say, it doesn't matter what color Jesus is. Well, it doesn't until it does. And for hundreds of years, this was coupled with the curse of Ham idea and Bibles were printed and sent out all over the world with various depictions of white Jesus. And this idea uh, was perpetrated that Jesus was white-skinned, and it's part of the curse of Ham, and you're inferior, and you should accept your status, and this is why we're superior, because Jesus was white. It's just the way it is. And so white Jesus was literally weaponized. And to this day, um, there is a growing movement around the world. We face this a lot in the African nations, and it's growing in the United States. The idea that Christianity is a white religion. And it comes from this time period, these abuses, these, uh, these twistings of true Christianity. And so I think it's very important for us to be able to, uh, you know, explain to people hey, you know what, I, I denounce white Jesus because it was used as a weapon. And so it does matter. And here's the truth about God gathering the nations and, and how God feels about these things. 
cultural forensic anthropologists now tell us that this is probably more what Jesus looked like, um, a man in first century Galilee, than uh, you know our typical depictions, which tend to look more like Fabio than anybody who lived in first century Israel. And so it's hard to hold to a view of white supremacy when that's your vision of God in the flesh. Now, race has always been not really about skin color. It's been a category so that certain people could maintain power. And it continued on in our country, in our situation, after the Civil War. You have black codes. You have disenfranchisement, where people were not allowed to vote for 100 years. You had property destructions. Uh, and, you know, when people did start to amass some wealth, uh, those black communities and cities were destroyed. There was the terror of lynching. There was redlining to keep housing inequity. There's annexation, colonization. Uh, there's the prison industrial complex, the war on drugs in the 1970s. Uh, statistics show very consistently that white people and black people use drugs at the same rate and sell drugs at the same rate. Yet the war on drugs went to the black communities in the inner cities. They didn't go to the suburbs. They didn't go to the college campuses, which actually have the highest rate of drug use. Uh, they went and militarized inner cities. And so this separation that started all the way back in some sense in 1619, but really at Bacon's Rebellion, has continued to carry out where we think that we're different because of the color of our skin and we treat each other differently. Now, I'm not saying that to say, um, you know, oh, there's, there's victims here, there's that. We're, we're not talking about a victim mentality. But if we think about the game of the Monopoly, when you start Monopoly, every player gets like whatever it is, $1,500 or something like that. But if you had one player, say four people were playing, and one player didn't get any money at the beginning, you took their money and you distributed it to the other three. Um, and then you made up some interesting rules like, well, if you pass go, if you don't have a amassed wealth of $1,000, then instead of getting $200, you only get $20. Um, all right, now we're playing by the same rules. Let's start the game. Even an hour or two later, the effect of that instance at the beginning and that rule that was put in place will continue to carry out throughout the rest of the game. And it would be easy for somebody to come and go, what's wrong with you? Why are you so bad at this game? We're all playing by the same rules. But there was inequity built into the game. Again, I'm not trying to demonize any one person. I'm trying to analyze how did our society get where it is and can we see it in a different way? And how is the kingdom of God, can we help address the sin that we find? Rather than being defensive about it or angry about it, rather than responding in the ways of the world or in some sin of some fashion, how would the kingdom of God respond to this? There's a difference between responsibility and guilt. I don't feel guilty about any of the things we just talked about or that happened in the past, but I do as a human being, certainly, as somebody who has benefited from some of the inequity of that game over time, and most assuredly, as a follower of Jesus, I bear responsibility to address these issues. I just do. 
And so I take that as part of my calling. When Jesus said the gospel is good news for the oppressed, good news for the marginalized, he meant that. If I refuse to tear down some of these historic structures and mindsets that have been built into our society, that starts to smell like discrimination and bigotry to others. If I defend those structures or want to remain blind to them or act like they're not there, they, they simply are, and that's objective history. Now, let me say this. What I did not give is an equal analysis of the sin of each racial and ethnic group. We're all guilty of sin. I said that at the beginning. We're simply trying to understand some of the causes that have led to our situation today so that we can be better equipped to address those situations with the truth of God's kingdom. And it leaves me with this conclusion. Romans 12, 15 says, mourn with those who mourn. And when I look at the situation of our culture and the history of the past few hundred years, I can't fix that. I can't take it away. I don't bear that burden. But what I can do is see it. And I can work the rest of my life to fight so that others won't experience that same pain. Words are important. We tend to throw around the word racism and racist today in ways that I think are unhelpful to the conversation. Uh, it's kind of like the word love. We misuse that word so often that it means nothing. You know, I love my wife and I love my dog. Um, how can I use the same word for both of those relationships? It's just not the same. Um, racism, I'm going to encourage us to try to use, to try to discipline ourselves. And it'll be difficult because this is not what society does. Everything's racist now. But I think we need to reserve the word racism for this structure and mindsets of oppression to build up this category of power called whiteness or any particular group. But in our situation, uh, that's who has the power. So racism is a structure of power and oppression. In that sense, I don't call any person a racist because I think it starts to get confusing when you overlap it. And you'll maybe hear somebody say, you know, well, a, an oppressed group of people can't be racist because they don't have power. And we've been using racist to mean somebody who treats somebody with discrimination or prejudice. And then we go, what do you mean people can't be racist? No, that's racist. And, and it's all muddled because we're using language sloppily. So let's reserve the term racism for that system. Prejudice, bigotry, discrimination, we can all be guilty of that. All human beings have prejudice and bias and bigotry and discrimination. I do. I'd be lying if I told you that I didn't. Now, I've tried to work the last 25 years to rid myself of those things. But a couple of years ago, I dropped a friend off at the airport at 3 a.m. And on the way back, I realized I needed to stop for gas. So I stopped. It's 3 a.m. I'm pumping gas. And while I'm doing it, two white guys walk by me on the sidewalk, and I didn't even think of it. I kind of glanced at them, and I continued to pump gas. Uh, a minute later, a door opens up in the building next to the gas station, and two black guys walk out, and I saw them out of the corner of my eye. And for just a second, my spine stiffened up, and I was like, oh, no, am I in trouble? 
Am I, I brace myself. Like, am I going to have to, am I in danger? And then I stopped and thought, and I was like, oh my goodness. Now I've been married to my wife, this amazing black woman for 25 years. I've raised two black sons. And yet, why did, I don't know those two white guys. Why did I assume they were not a threat? I don't know these two black guys. Why did I assume they were a threat? Because it's been conditioned into me from the culture around me. That's just reality. It's been conditioned into me because I don't know either of them. And I have to be honest about that. And we all have those biases and prejudices. If you say you don't, you're, you're deceiving yourself. Now, maybe you've done a really good job at getting most of them out of there, but they're still there. And I also think we need to become a church where we don't buy into this cancel culture of if somebody's guilty of that, now you, we're ending you. It's the unforgivable sin. That's not the body of Christ either. We need to be loving and gracious and patient, but persistent. Call sin, sin. Bigotry, bias, prejudice is sin. But we deal with it the same way we would pride or lying or greed or whatever. We go after it, but we, we want to create a place where people can stand up and say, you know what? I think I've been guilty of bias or discrimination or, and people, we find grace rather than let's shut them down. I even saw a disciple of Jesus Christ in another city post that this morning. Somebody was like, that's white supremacy. They need to be shut down. Well, what does that accomplish in the body of Christ? Patient, loving conversations that might be painful. We'll talk about that in a little bit. That might be unfair. We'll get to that. I want to show you this picture. Can you all see these two circles? Okay. One of these circles is bigger than the other. All right. So I want you to look at them. It's really difficult to see. But I assure you, one of them is bigger than the other. And you determine which one is bigger. Now, because I can't see you all, I can only see a couple of you. Um, I, I, I'm going to trust you, honor system here. But vote in your mind which is bigger. If you think that the purple circle is bigger, lock that into your mind right now. And if you think the green circle is bigger, lock that in your mind right now. Now, with that in mind of which circle is bigger, if I made you pick which circle is better and said you have to argue which one is better, you most likely would pick your circle, the one that you think is bigger, right? Now, here's the reality. If you said the purple circle is bigger, you're wrong. If you said the green circle is bigger, you're wrong because they're the exact same size. And, but the point is how many of you became convinced that one was bigger than the other and is like, yeah, my circle is bigger. It's better. I would argue that. See, we're so easily manipulated as human beings to believe things that aren't necessarily true just because somebody said it without checking it out, without, and we'll just accept it along the way. And we've got to recognize that even as Christians, there are a lot of biases and things and realities and histories and perceptions that we maybe believe that we haven't examined every thought and made it obedient to Christ. And we're going to need to do that to really address the culture that we have in mind.
if we are not willing to examine our prejudices, they will eventually, and in the church, turn into bigotry and discrimination. I'll share something here from my wife's perspective. She couldn't join us today, um, as I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, I've learned she, she faces, um, not only deals with the system of racism, but prejudice, bigotry, things uh, I've seen through her eyes, through my son's eyes. Um, we've had times where when we were moving to Minneapolis, we, we found a house to rent in a, in a nice neighborhood. We were all ready. We talked to the person on the phone. She was, oh, love you guys. You're amazing. You're a minister. Yeah, here's the home everything else. We hadn't seen it in person. We'd only seen it online. We were going there to rent the house. We showed up. We got out of the car. The woman took one look at my wife and said, oh, I'm sorry. I've already rented the place. And so we're like, what? And we left. Two weeks later, my wife got back online. That house was still for rent online. So she's faced things like that. We, and that's just one story of many. But when you face that out in the world, and then you come into the church and things, there, there's a sensitivity to, oh, no, not in the church. And we've got to understand that. We've got to understand that people can be a, a really sensitive about bias, about prejudice, about bigotry in the church. And, you know, people want to be part of the body of Christ or they would have left. So let's figure out how to be sensitive, how to be loving and work through these things. Um, unacknowledged biases create frustration and start to look like prejudice. Now, let me talk about one other thing here. It's called symbolic race. And it's the mindset that says, I reject discrimination. I won't treat anybody differently because of the color of their skin, but denies that prejudice in them or that exists and opposes any policy that would enable those who are disadvantaged from the previous system to improve their position. And so it wants to lock in place the idea of, I got seven pieces of pizza and you get one. That's fair. We all get pizza. Let's not, let's not look at this too closely and examine change. That starts to be really problematic for the person who's only ever gotten one piece of pizza. And so we get, oh, well, you're trying to be divisive. No, we're looking for equality. How do politics play a role in this? I, I've got to go through this really quickly. Jesus, wherever he went, announced the kingdom of God. In the second century, uh, African church leader named Tertullian says, in us, all ardor in the pursuit of glory and honor is dead. So we have no pressing inducement to take part in your politics, nor is there anything more entirely foreign to us in affairs of state. The position of the early church was, we will take on the injustices of the world, but not through the means of worldly politics. We're not going to get wrapped up in them because they ain't going to fix anything anyways. When has politics, for the love of God, fixed anything truly big in our culture? So they said, you know what will fix it? The kingdom of God. And we're not going to withdraw from society, but we're going to apply the reality and alternative of the kingdom to the world. And if that means we've got to drop our allegiances to these things, we will. 
We're allegiant to Jesus alone, not to a nation, not to a leader, not to a political group. Paul says, now this is a different context, but the principle is the same. He says, if the fact that I have the freedom to eat meat will cause my brother pain or to sin, I'll never eat meat again. Meat's not that important. I'll be a vegetarian for the sake of my brother and sister. What's more important to us, our political freedoms and opinions or the unity of a kingdom vision for the world? And we often make a mistake in the 1980s, 70s and 80s, a ton of well-meaning Christians heard the Republican Party for the first time really come out and say abortion is a sin, immorality is a sin, and they were calling out biblical sins. And people were like, oh my goodness, politicians are finally speaking our language and they're talking about the injustices and sin. Yes, we're on board. And they rushed in droves into that party and that political philosophy and they gave their allegiance to that group. But they didn't stop to realize that that group also supported a lot of positions that are not consistent with the biblical worldview and that the solutions that they were offering to these biblical sins were not kingdom rooted. Now we fast forward to today and we see a similar mindset. The liberal democratic party is calling out racial injustice economic injustice, calling it sin. And many of us are like, yes, finally, somebody's calling out the sins that matter to me, that affect me, bam. And they're rushing over, yes, amen. And they're now giving their allegiance to that political philosophy, not taking the time to realize that many of the things they stand for are not consistent with the biblical worldview and that the solutions they offer are not kingdom-rooted solutions And now we have a divided church where we have people who have given their allegiance over to the right saying, I can't believe you would call yourself a Christian and support that politician or group. And we have people on the left going, I can't believe you would call yourself a Christian and support that man or that group. And we're making the exact same error. And we're failing to be the kingdom. Now in that, let let me make this clear. Standing up for the oppressed, the exploited, the marginalized, against cultural imperialism, demanding equality and dignity for all, those are not political issues. That's not politics. When we say, hey, we've got to look at sin. We've got to look at inequity. We've got to stand up for the oppressed. Oh, no, let's not talk about that. That's politics. No, that's called a conversation ender. It is not politics. These are Jesus issues. But here's the thing. Now, in your church, I'm going to assume, I don't know for sure, but I'm going to assume that you all, um, probably you're in a regional family of churches. I would guess that you uh, support other churches in missions and and things like that. Is that that accurate? Um, Okay, so that changes the way your church operates, because you're not just one local church. You're part of a global family of churches. It changes your perspective, it changes uh, your economics. I think, think of how many more staff people you could hire or how many more ministries you could be involved with if you didn't send over special missions every year. You know, things of that nature, it changes. Well, and that's an illustration. As kingdom people, we've got to understand that we are not just one nation. We are part of 
come kingdom members, we are a global family of all nations. Why would I want to see one nation exalted over the other? That's not a kingdom perspective. Why would I take that perspective? Why would I want to see one race or ethnicity or tribe exalted over the other? Why would I want to see one cult culture favored over the other? We want to bring them all in because we are part of a unified global kingdom that's multi-ethnic, multinational, multiracial, multicultural, multilingual, and multi-tribal. That's who we are in the kingdom of God. We are one. It's one of my favorite terms. Um, I spend a lot of time uh, in Zulu areas in Africa, the KwaZulu Natal. And uh, I've actually been adopted um, as, as an official uh, member of the Zulu nation. Uh, I'm, I'm proud of that, the culture, because um, I, I, I love the people there, I love the culture. So if you ever are on Facebook and you see my name and you're like, Michael Mbuso Burns, what is that? That's my Zulu name, um, Mbuso, it means kingdom. But they have a term in Zulu and it's, uh, we are one. And we have adopted that term in the Two Cities Church. We have Simunye weekends, we have Simunye workshops, we have Simunye Sundays, we have all kinds of things. Because we're one, we're on the mission together. Peter says this, he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We have to see ourselves as God's kingdom first. That has to be our allegiance. So let me start landing the plane here and say, how do we respond to a world that's so divided over these things? Uh, I think it starts definitely with our allegiances. We have to let go of our political, national, racial allegiances and are, is Jesus going to be our primary king and allegiance or not? That's, that's a serious question. If so, and we are part of the kingdom, then what is our response going to be to these things? How are we going to have a kingdom response? Jesus says, what, what the world tells you is if somebody punches you in the eye, takes your eye, you take their eye. If they take your tooth, you take their tooth. That's even in the Old Testament. That's called justice, right? And this was actually a limiting thing. We tend to look at it the Old Testament and go, wow, that's kind of grisly, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Well, the way it used to be in the ancient world is if you take my eye, I'm going to take your whole head. If you take my tooth, I'm going to take your son. So it's actually a limiting level of justice. But Jesus says, I'm going to show you a different way. Instead of power and justice, which does not really end the issue, if somebody slaps you in the face, rather than slapping them back in power or running in weakness, we'll give you a third way, a kingdom way. I want you to stand there and show them love. Act in their interest rather than your own. They may hit you again, but you show them a different way to live because your allegiance is to the kingdom, and that's what you're trying to demonstrate. Too often on this issue, we engage and not show people the kingdom. We let our emotions take over, or we strive for mere justice. Justice is, is fine to a degree, but the kingdom is bigger than that. It's bigger. Jesus even says, if someone wants to humiliate you racially, which is what the Romans would do, you're just a Jew, carry my stuff for a mile. But that was all. They didn't want to 
you know, enrage the people. You could only have them carry it a mile. Jesus says, you could fight it, you could demand justice, or you could just do it and quiet and deal with it and go on. But then that just perpetuates the system. He said the kingdom way is to take it a mile and then say, and now I'm going to show you a different way to live. I'm going to put your interests ahead of my own, and I'm going to carry your pack another mile. That's big boy and big girl stuff. That's challenging. And it's unfair. It's unfair. But think about this. What's more unfair than the cross? And this is what Jesus is demonstrating. Is this is what the cross looks like. In he goes on in Matthew 5 and says, you know, you've heard love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Because God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Even the tax collectors can do that. If you greet only your own people, so what? Even the pagans can do that. Therefore, be perfect as your father is perfect. That word perfect is teleos. And it means complete. And what he's saying here is God is complete in who he loves. There's no one outside of God's love. There's no one who's done so much evil that God says, I'm just going to drop the hammer on you. You don't deserve love anymore. And he says, that's what I'm calling you to. If you want to be children of God, there's nobody outside of God's love. Oh, but I, that group, they're unjust. They're white supremacists. They're evil. They're racist. Let's take them down. Well, let's oppose them. Let's not let them continue. But how do we do that in love? That's what Jesus calls us to. There's a lot of talk these days about being woke, you know, being aware, knowledgeable about the community and, and the systems of oppression that are going on. Should Christians be woke? Well, in the sense of Paul says, wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. See what's really going on here. Yes, be aware. Don't copy the world. Don't use the weapons of the world. But also don't discount the world when they correctly call out sin. Sometimes they see it more clearly than we do. Amen. Be humble. Don't follow their solutions. But keep this in mind. If you've seen the movie Black Panther, that's a character named Eric Killmonger. And if you, <laughs> there you go. I'm seeing, I'm seeing Jeff has got the Killmonger hairstyle. All right. If you watch the movie, Killmonger was right in a lot of his philosophy and what he said. He was right, but he also was engulfed by his own bitterness. And because he didn't control his bitterness, he went the wrong way. So we can see the sin. We can see what needs to be dealt with, but we've got to deal with it in a kingdom way, the sacrificial kingdom way. Nelson Mandela said the road to freedom is via the cross. It takes sacrifice. The only means a Christian has of destroying their enemies is loving them until they are our friend. That's really hard, and it's really challenging. Number two, what is a kingdom identity? In Colossians, there is no superior or inferior categories in the kingdom of God. There's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, 
Christ equals all of this. Doesn't mean we become blind to it and pretend that those differences don't exist, but we make sure that in the church, there's not an advantage, that we don't let the world define for us what our identities are, that Christ becomes our identity. I've been asking this question for years. If a race war broke out in the world, where would your loyalties lie? And if that's a hard question for you to answer, may I humbly submit that maybe you haven't grasped the fullness of your identity in Christ. I am not a white disciple. I'm a disciple who happens to be a white man in the world, and there's realities with that that I have to face. But my true identity is in Jesus Christ. Dr. King said our loyalties must transcend our race, our tribe, our class, and our nation. And this means we must develop a world perspective. The only word I would change in that quote is I would change world to kingdom. We develop a kingdom perspective that transcends all these other things. Number three, we need what is a kingdom perspective? I love this. Paul says, were you a slave when you were called? Then in God's eyes, you're free. Were you freed when you were called? Then in God's eyes, you're a slave to Christ. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Do not let people dictate to you what your value is, what your worth is, what your identity is, what your status is. We are not doing that in the body of Christ. The only thing that matters is you are a child of God. And if the world gives a privilege to you that you didn't ask for because of where you were born and the color of your skin, don't deny it. Don't pretend like it's not there. You didn't ask for it. It's not your fault. But do what Christians do. Use it for the benefit of others. That's what Paul did. He used his status for the benefit of others. And if the world tells you that you're inferior or unprivileged or, you know, marginalized, then don't you believe it because in God's eyes, you are of inestimable value. You are his child. Yes, the world may treat you that way, but that's not who you are. There is a dignity that transcends that, that comes with the body of Christ. However, the church has to be the kingdom, which means a place where we do not let the inequities and the oppression and the privileges of society be mirrored in the church. We take the effort to not be blind to them, to not deny them, to not listen to people who say they don't exist, to be realistic. This is what Paul does. He says, look at the inequities. And if there are inequities in society, people are treated less honorable of lower status than in the church. We must take effort to balance that out, to make it even ground, to make sure that those things don't come in the church. We could do a whole workshop on that, but I've got to move on. Jesus said, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor, the prisoner, the blind, the oppressed, to set people free. That's what the kingdom is. That's what it looks like. Now, I've had people ask me, can we end racism and prejudice in America? That's my honest answer. In the culture at large, I don't know. But even if we could, we would just find a new way to divide because sin is sin. And outside of the kingdom of God, we're going to find ways to divide. So we've got to remain focused on the kingdom of God. For Jesus, the good news was not the end of Roman occupation of Israel although that was unjust. For Paul, the good news was not the end of slavery. 
superior violence in Roman Empire, although those were unjust, and they worked against those things. But violence, slavery, hatred would come to an end in the kingdom of God. That was the good news. They didn't ignore these things. They ended them in the kingdom and then worked to address them in the culture without ever being so deceived that the culture was going to get rid of those things fully. But they fought against those things in the culture to point people to the reality of the kingdom. The early Christians fought for and advocated for justice and for the oppressed, uh, but not as an end. It was done to point to the values of the kingdom of God where true justice would be found. And in that sense, the kingdom of God must remain bigger than temporary justice. Finally, we have a kingdom priority. Jesus said, come and follow me and I'll send you out to fish for people. He said, seek first the kingdom of God. The kingdom has to look different. It has to be our primary uh, priority, our responsibility, our passion. And think about this. If the responses and answers of the kingdom look just like the political parties or special interest groups of the world, then what's the point of the kingdom of God? If our social media posts look just like any other conservative or liberal person, then what's the point of you being a kingdom person? It's got to look different. It may overlap with those things at times, but we never give our allegiances or loyalty to those things. We remain focused on the kingdom. I'm going to stop here. Um, Jeff mentioned at the beginning, um, I do have four books that are on these topics, Crossing the Line, Culture, Race, and Kingdom, All Things to All People, The Power of Cultural Humility, A Crown That Will Last, a 49-day devotional on cultural humility, and the one that just came out this week is called Escaping the Beast, Politics, Allegiance, and Kingdom. Um, you can get any of those. Um, you can get them on Amazon or IPI books, but also it, it does help the ministry uh, continue here if, if you purchase them through michaelburnsteachingministry.com. Um, and with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Jeff. This has been an episode of the Southern Connecticut Church of Christ podcast. Please subscribe so you can keep up to date with the latest podcast.